Welcome to Inside IR, a podcast series by Herbert Smith Freehills that explores the latest developments in the Australian industrial relations landscape. Hello and welcome to Inside IR, the Australian industrial relations podcast, the series that arms HR, IR and legal professionals with the latest industrial relations thinking. My name's Rowan Doyle and I'm a partner in the industrial relations team at Herbert Smith Freehills. And I'm pleased to be joined today with fellow partner, Melbourne-based partner, Tony Wood. Welcome, Tony. Hi, Rowan. How are you? And it's nice to be here with the couch, on the couch with you. Yes, back on the couch. Not your first time on the couch, Tony. You've uh, had another episode uh, talking about enterprise bargaining, in fact. And uh, I think you brought to us some very useful statistics last time <laughs> you were with us. So I don't know if you've got anything in store I'll for us I'll save that for next today. time, Rowan. No, Okay, no statistics. Sorry about that all. Um, but we've spent the last few episodes, as you will know, to our uh, loyal listeners talking about secure jobs, better pay and the amendments that have come through in that legislation. And we've shared our thoughts on the impact of those changes and in particular made the point that it really, collectively speaking, those changes are going to change the approach to enterprise bargaining quite significantly. It turns the system on its head and it will change the way in which employers need to prepare. If we roll out the same old tactics and strategies, it is not going to work and it's going to result in some pretty poor outcomes. What are the changes that we're talking about, Tony? Uh, Leaving aside the bargaining process related changes, things relating to the the boot and the voting process, etc. Leave those to one side, that's for another day. But in terms of the changes that actually change the power base at the bargaining table, that change how much leverage employers have vis-a-vis other bargaining representatives. There's really five of those. And I'll recap on those briefly. The first is the new threat to employers of multi-enterprise bargaining. So Tony, we know that for uh, the first time, employers may be able to be forced to bargain with other unrelated employers in the bargaining Or additionally roped into an agreement that's been made without their participation. I mean, that's a a possibility. Absolutely, yes. And perhaps even worse than being roped into the bargaining process itself. Um, So we've undertaken a deep dive into multi-enterprise bargaining in a previous episode, but that is the first change. The second is the new Fair Work Commission powers to arbitrate and end to bargaining in the context of intractable bargaining. Now, uh, again, we've, we've undertaken a deep dive in relation to that in previous episodes, but the point there is that employers lose control, Tony. It is another mechanism that unions and employees can use to end the bargaining without necessarily the employer deciding to put an agreement well, to vote. Well, it's exciting and it's scary at the same time mm. because we you know, we talk about going back to the future and what it used to be like when we operated with a, within an arbitral regime. And now we are recreating this potential system where if you, I mean, you've talked about intractable bargaining already, but you know, once you reach that point of what is it, nine months after your bargaining, mm. um, you go into this whole new world where you can be you know, compelled to justify your position to the, you know, an independent third party who's not operating your business. And all of a sudden we're creating, you know, uh, arbitrated agreements as if they're awards and binding, uh, binding obligations. That's Quite right. frightening and scary for many employers, but not all employers necessarily. You know, some employers might say, I just need something to let off the steam. And it might not be the worst case scenario for everyone. But all things being equal, probably, I'm sure most of our clients, almost all of them, would rather not be in that position. Yeah, you're right. Some see it as a potential opportunity. I think that will be in the minority. But I think yeah. the key point there is that previously, subject to some very minor exceptions, 
employers had full control because only employers can could decide yes, yeah. when to put an agreement to vote. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's a significant change. Third is that terminating enterprise agreements during bargaining is now, I'm going to say, effectively impossible. There is a test there that, that does open the door subject to some very stringent criteria, yeah. but for almost all employers, that is no longer available, which means employees and unions will sit more comfortably at the bargaining table and be confident that absent intractable bargaining, there is no way for them to go backwards. The status quo is the worst possible outcome, yeah. and that will result in some impacts, which we'll come to in a moment. Yeah. Fourth is the new union powers to actually force commencement of bargaining without having to go through the MSD process. Just simply writing a letter, Tony, is for, now... For employees that have got existing enterprise agreements. That are within five old... years of yeah. nominal expiry. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. But still, you know, pretty significant. It's a power that didn't exist before. Yeah. And some employers we've already seen being thrown into bargaining at a time when they're not ready for it. Yeah. And that's going to be an issue. And then finally, perhaps less of a change, but will impact some employers, the sunsetting of zombie agreements. So agreements made pre-Fair Work Act or during the Fair Work Act bridging period, yeah. they will sunset um, within 12 months post-commencement of the reforms, um, which at the time of filming is in around, uh, I think, nine, eight months' time. Um, that will force some employers into a bargaining process that they perhaps haven't had for quite some time. So I think it's important. They're the, the five changes that I would say, Tony, impact bargaining power. They leverage. do, and they're having an impact right now because True. you, you know, I could rattle off a, a list of our clients who are, who are being forced into positions or taking positions strategically to protect themselves yeah. against, amongst other things, the first one that you mentioned, which was, you know, multi-employer bargaining and, and the best, you know, going over stuff you've already covered in previous episodes, but the best thing you can do is to have an in-term enterprise agreement to protect yep. yourself from that. So clients that have avoided bargaining uh, for a whole range of often very valid reasons in the past are jumping in straight away on that. That's right. And uh, avoiding it for most won't be an option anymore. No. So I think, which sort of brings us to how are those five changes going to work collectively? What, what um, outcomes are they going to produce for bargaining? Well, I think that's pretty clear and in many senses undebatable. Unions are going to be able to force the commencement of bargaining in many cases. So we're going to yep. see more bargaining rounds, more frequent bargaining rounds, less delay between them, and possibly employers being thrust into bargaining in, at times when they might not be as prepared for it. That's the first point. And, and longer bargaining rounds as mm. well. I mean, the, the duration of, I don't know if there's data on this, here's me talking about data all the time, but <laughs> I, there, there must be data on what the average duration between starting bargaining and concluding bargaining is. And I tell you what, if we could get the data between what, what was the case a year ago and what it is now and what it's likely to be in a year's time, I'm almost certain that it's going to take longer and longer to, to, to reach agreement because there's no incentive. Well, there is always an incentive to get an agreement because uh, you, you want to get the pay increase and you want to extract the benefits of bargaining. But we know most of our clients and most employees out there are generally agreeing to back payment anyway. Mm. Uh, do you think that's an exaggeration? No, no, I mean, a lot do. It's the claim. Uh, I mean, most, a most lot unions do. are claiming for yeah. it and a lot of them will concede it. I so, think in the new world, though, there should be greater resistance. To there, that. there was going to have to be, mm. because uh, if I'm right in this thesis uh, that bargaining is going to take longer, and unions are going to see this incentive to push it out to the nine-month kind of threshold, so that they can have the 
opportunity to arbitrate before the commission. It means that there's going to be more and more time expended. So that's a really good point, Rowan. You're, yeah. not, you're, you're not going to want to put you know, back pay on the table um, because indefinitely, you know, you're up for a whole year's you know, pay uh, for, for no reward if there is a reward at all in getting an agreement up. And we'll come to this a little bit later, but you'll also want to do your best to make unions and employees feel like trying rolling the dice in the intractable bargaining jurisdiction is going to result in worse outcomes for them. Yeah. Now, maybe easier said than done, but that, that's certainly something that should be considered. Yeah, your point on the data is an interesting one, actually, Tony, because that data is there. There's a question on the F-17 or, or the yeah. F-16 yeah. that asks about when the notification time was. We know when agreements are made. So. I haven't seen it published. No, so nor I. We should, in fact, we'll, we'll take that offline. We might yeah. see whether we can extract yeah. that information for future episodes. Yeah. So um, that's that's the first point. Unions can force. Uh, we'll see more bargaining rounds, more frequent, yeah. and possibly longer ones. Yeah. Second point is that it's highly unlikely that terms and conditions are ever going to go backwards, because in essence, you need to force or you need to achieve that outcome. Employees to vote it up. And we know that that's unlikely unless you offer some significant carrot in exchange for any reductions in terms and conditions. Or alternatively, you need to convince the Fair Work Commission in intractable bargaining to do so. Now, for those that have watched our earlier episode on intractable bargaining, you'll note the new uh, factor that's been put into the Act that the Fair Work Commission must consider in arbitrating those conditions, which is going to make it very difficult to wind any existing term and condition back. So what that means is, absent extreme circumstances, the terms and conditions you agree to in enterprise agreements are going to be everlasting. They're in perpetuity, which is in some sense what practically we've faced for many years. Hmm. And, and very, very few employees have ever wound back conditions you know, in the totality of the bargain. That's true, but many have threatened and achieved negotiated outcomes uh, in response You're to that right. threat. It, it mm. removes a leverage point from mm. bargaining, and, and that is a significant, as indeed, as you mentioned, the, the ability to terminate an agreement. They're, they're really important points of leverage that are just removed. They're out of the equation. Yeah. So it becomes a lot easier for bargaining reps or union bargaining reps as well to, to prosecute their claims. Which means we're going to see more ambit in union claims and we're going to see less willingness to compromise of them because yeah. there's no real downside to um, just sitting there because worst case scenario is status quo in most cases. Yeah, I think that's right. Third and finally, uh, unions and employers now have that other option. We've already mentioned this. When they're unhappy with the terms that are being offered by the employer, they don't have to just sit there and wait for something better or, or just accept what's on offer. Mm. They can make an application to the Fair Work Commission, yep. subject to waiting the appropriate period of time and yes. showing that a deal is otherwise not likely, then that is an option that's available. That's true. I mean, look, let's be practical. I mean, nine months is a long time to have to wait to, to get, you know, as an incentive for unions, uh, you know, to, to seek an arbitrated outcome. And, you know, we talked about the data. I, I suspect most agreements are concluded within somewhere between three and six months, but there's a lot of outliers as well. And yeah. I, I don't know, there'd be a difference between the mean and the median and the mode data on all of that, mm. I'd reckon. But And I, the size of the deal, the yeah. nature of the employer, the stakes that are in play, there'll be a whole range of factors. And but I know the more contentious bargaining rounds though, Tony, with the bigger employers often I was just going to say, go in, longer than in that. some yeah. sectors, you know, banking you know, can take years to get agreements uh, for a whole range of reasons, many of which are associated with the different leverage 
of the bargaining parties. Now that leverage is changing as well. So, yeah. uh, you know, there's so many uncertain variables which will play out in this process over the next 12, 24 months. I agree. But if you look at all of these changes and the consequences that we've talked through collectively, it's uh, very clear. I mean, this this really takes power away from employers. No matter what positive yeah, totally. spin you put on yes. any of these things, yes, there might be the odd positive here and there, but collectively, employers are going backwards on bargaining power and on bargaining leverage. That is undebatable. And as a consequence of that, it actually changes quite significantly the approach to bargaining and how we suggest that employers should prepare for bargaining, which really brings us to the topic of this episode, Tony. We've On our previous podcasts, we've done a lot of admiring of the problem. We've touched in places on some of the solutions, but what we're hoping to do is really bring together on this particular podcast, what are our suggestions, practical suggestions for what employers should do in bargaining planning to best set them up for success? But yep. before we get to those answers, Tony, I think it's important to set the scene a little bit. Love to hear your thoughts on, on why we say bargaining planning is so much more important under this new bargaining regime. Well, I mean, we've, we've really probably already talked about them. I mean, first thing, thing you know, the, the, the power of timing of your agreement is out of your, own, out of your control. The unions can compel you to bargain mm. um, in certain circumstances. The duration of bargaining is likely to be, to be longer. Um, and you have less control. That whilst an agreement was traditionally always made, you know, either at the, you know, the request of the employee, the employers make agreements. They make agreements with employees. Mm. And now we've got the capacity for uh, employers to be roped into multi-employer agreements or to be uh, uh, part of the bargaining uh, uh, of employers in that scheme or alternatively, uh, you know, to be to be forced to arbitrate. So all of those factors play into the fact that how are you going to prepare for all of those potential contingencies? Yeah. What bucket do you see yourself in? Are you are you more vulnerable? And I think there are certain employees that are more vulnerable for multi-employer bargaining than others. Definitely. Um, although all of them notionally may be if you have a, a, an expired agreement. So that's probably the first and most important consideration. Uh, parameters have changed. Um, and we have to we, we have to convince employers have to convince unions that they've got a good deal, and it could take you know some time uh, before they can you know actually get to that process of convincing in the absence of all of the other uh, you know leverage that's been removed. How are they going to get to that position? It's harder, and and it's it going to be longer as we've said before. And to make I know I've made this point on previous episodes, but really what you're trying to convince employers and unions of is different now. Yeah, yeah, it it yeah. used to be, well, we need to convince them that this is the best deal on offer by the employer. Yeah. There's nothing being held back by the employer yeah, yeah. because absent very uh, rare circumstances, there wasn't the arbitration option. But now that there's the arbitration option, which can effectively, I mean, it's going to happen in any bargaining round if it goes on for yeah. long enough and the parties try their hardest but don't get there. Yeah. So you now you need to convince them that the deal you're offering is actually better than what they can reasonably hope to get yeah. the commission. And, and by the way, the, it's not just arbitration. We've always had access to you know the Section 240 process of, of yes. conciliation. I think that's going to continue to be used more effectively and more right. regularly mm. um, by by on application by any of the bargaining reps, employers or employees. If you you. you 
I mean, I've seen this working very effectively and, you know, it's, it's okay to be sceptical about, you know, the kind of service you might be getting from some members of the commission and some, there's a bit of hit and miss and some are better than others, realistically. Some have got a better demeanour, some can get, you know, down to duty and really nut out a deal. Uh, but, you know, we're using that all the time and clients of ours are using that mechanism much more frequently, I think, now than they have been in even the, the past few years. And I think that's I going to continue to accelerate yeah. as a precursor potentially to uh, to arbitrated outcomes in the Commission. Yeah. So you, you've mentioned, Tony, that given the new capacity for unions to start bargaining, employers need to be ready earlier, certainly by the non-expiry date of existing agreements. but. I think we're saying to clients, it really should be much earlier than that, six, nine months you out. You need to start earlier. I mean, and, and let's face it, if you want to avoid multi-employer bargaining, um, you need to start your bargaining to give yourself more time to, to, to get your agreements, your, your single uh, employer interest agreements up. So uh, That's you know, the other point. You want yeah. to increase your chances of yes. keeping your deals in yeah, term, absolutely. the holy grail we know. But, you know, if you don't start early, then you've got no chance. Yep. But then finally, I mean, we've mentioned that um, what little leverage employers did have in the old regime has been reduced further. Mm. So there's actually only a small handful of levers that employers can pull to enhance the prospects of reaching agreement. And so employers need to be yeah. much more rigorous about the use of those mechanisms and be clear about when and how they'll be used. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, I mean, that agree with all of that, Tony. Um, that explains why bargaining planning is so much more important in this new world. It always was. Uh, but I think now we're going to see a very large difference between the outcomes that people get who plan well versus those who don't. Yep. But let's get into the specifics. So if you had to choose three of your top tips on what employers should do in investing in, in bargaining planning, what would you recommend? Well, the first one is an oldie but a goodie, and it is, it's still true. Uh, and that is engagement with, with your employees. And, you know, that... You mean pre-bargaining? Pre, but I mean yeah. now. Yes. Um, you might have an agreement in three years' time. If you're not, if you don't start that process about how are we going to get better engagement with our employees? You know, how do we measure that? It's it's about the culture in your business. It's about the 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 level of supervision. It's about whether it's officious or consultative. Um, you know, every business needs to be understanding that the, the, the more that they're engaged, they have a workforce that's engaged and shares the common goals and objectives, the much more likely they're going to be to be able to secure agreement from employees mm. and trust. Uh, you know, I remember when, um, gosh, you know, probably 25 years ago when, uh, when I went on a secondment to, I can say the client now, Telstra, and, and you know, they, they'd just been privatised and uh, corporatised and it was a brand new world for them. We just had uh, major reforms to the, you know, the Howard reforms to the, to the legislation, the Industrial Relations Act, probably what it was called back then. And uh, I, I, I had said all these new tools and mechanisms for individual agreements and they're all there. And Rob Cartwright was the... Uh, the, the head of employee relations, uh, former Rio Tinto executive. Uh, and he had this strong mantra about engagement of employees. And I said, well, you've got all these mechanisms. Let's roll out Australian workplace agreements and get individual agreements. And he said, not yet. Because he knew that that business at that time wasn't ready. They didn't have the trust and the confidence. They'd come from a, from a government ownership into private ownership, and there was just not trust. 
they spent at least 12 months educating their managers, their supervisors, and engaging with the staff. They did a pretty good job. And then they were able to you know, take advantage of a whole lot of the reforms. And there was a lot of low-hanging fruit back in those days. Mm. That's just an example. I mean- Your point that, is that it shouldn't start when bargaining starts. It's really a continuous it's cycle. It's a long that process. Yeah. And, and enough, you know, the, the legislation doesn't change that, but it makes it more important for that to be an emphasis on, on, on any business. To a be, to a be great first honest. tip, Tony, <laughs> worthy inclusion. Well, Do the, you have another? The second is just be really clear. I mean, this is again, it's common sense, but what are your objectives for bargaining? It's really important to understand what it is that you want to achieve out of bargaining and what is practical. And again, what what is your best case scenario and what is your worst case scenario? Mm. Uh, you know, are you liable if this continues to be roped into um, a multi-employer agreement? Um, are you poss- is it possible that you're going to get an arbitrated uh, proceeding if, if you don't get your timing? You know, all of those factors that go into understanding what it is you want, who is going to be part of your, um, your bargaining team? Uh, are you going to engage the business or is it going to be run by the, you know, the IR or employer relations group? Uh, within your business. All of those factors go to suggest you need to understand what you want to achieve and what can you afford and how can you justify your position? Because all of those things go into you know, communicating and messaging with your employees years in advance of what, what the position might be. And if I may add to that, Tony, ensuring that the view of the business on each of those issues is consistent yeah. all the way up the chain. And it doesn't change mm. over, over six months or 12 months. No. Don't tell everyone how gangbusters the business is going um, if, in fact, part of your mantra is going to be, look, we need to tighten the screws. Mm. If you're sending inconsistent messaging. So it really means, you know, seriously, years in advance of the next bargaining round to be get, sitting in there and saying, what is your comm strategy? How are you going to implement this? Um, How does what, it align what is with your our objectives messaging? for bargaining yeah, exactly. and so on and so forth? Exactly. And yeah. the, 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 the truth is, as we know, that most businesses are just, you know, working day by day. They're planning ahead, you know, next week, next month, maybe three months. It's really hard to take the time to do the planning and saying, right, where are we going to be on bargaining in three years' time yeah. when the next agreement expires or four years if they're lucky? And how can we plan and prepare and get all of that messaging right? And let's be honest. I mean, unions, generally speaking, do this bit well. The claims development, the communication side, there's always exceptions. Yes, yeah, sorry, you saw me going, do they <laughs> yeah. always? I mean, yes, particular experiences. Yeah, some do. <laughs> but generally speaking, that, that is the area that yeah. they excel in yeah. and it's an area yeah. that requires yeah. some investment. Well, that's what their business is. Correct. You know, our clients are in, you know, doing multiple things. You know, they're running a business, they're trying to sell products and, you know, they're importing, exporting, they're, they're doing a whole variety of things. And, and those people who are doing the doing of the business need to be engaged in the process of bargaining as well because that's an important element and unless they're engaged then uh you know there's there's risk for the business so that's number two tony what's your third and final tip well well, the third one really is 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 an overlap of that and it's just the preparation issue it's about making sure that you've done all of this you know you know what your, your your objectives are and you're planning well and truly in advance. So I've kind of probably covered that in the second one. But what would you normally recommend time period-wise? Like I know it's hard, depends oh, on the business, depends on the objectives. Well, but 
if you're not looking at your objectives at least two years before the expiry of the agreement, then you're doing yourself a disservice. Yep. Um, and that means not just you know putting a, a meeting in, uh, it means you know bringing stakeholders together, understanding where you're likely to be. You won't have necessarily an understanding on what the pay outcomes might be at the enterprise bargaining level in two years you know, time. But you'll need to know what is it that's constraining the business? Where are the opportunities for you to get flexibility? Is there any scope in your agreement to be able to extract concessions? And what's it worth? How do you value that? Uh, you know, and, and to get the evidence that you can start you know, conditioning your employees as well. You know, hey, this is a problem for us. Mm. Uh, and, and working on that and chipping away, so you're creating expectations within your workforce. So again, that's all part of the planning. But I think that's right. You know, what would you say? I mean, you'd want to use Depends on the deal. I think for, certainly for a big agreement, large employer, lots of employees covered, therefore big cost implication of the business. Absolutely. And, and that's the only way to start two years out. If you're going to actually tie it in with your engagement and comm strategy, yeah. well, you've got no choice. <laughs> you yeah. you yeah. need to at least have, a, have an idea about what the objectives will be yeah. before yeah. you can loop it in with the comms. But I think it, it, it does depend. But I think the overarching point, irrespective of where you land on when, the point is bargaining is a continuous cycle. And if you treated it just as to something that you do every two, three, four years, yes. that's where you fall into Painfully, the trap. Painfully, yeah, here <laughs> yes. we are dragged through, which is It's a continuous process yeah. that never really ends. Yeah. Some downside to that. But I think if yeah. you approach it with that mindset, you're going to do a lot better at those various things you've mentioned. And uh, I mean, we, we go into minutiae just for a moment. I mean, we know you can have an agreement last as long as a week or it can be uh, as short as a week or as long as four years. I reckon most of our clients, again, the, the data would say most agreements are three years duration. Um, that's an important aspect to look, obviously, with the planning. You want to plan when the agreement is going to expire, when your vulnerability is. Do you have other agreements that are expiring at similar times? Is that desirable? Or in fact, do you want to make sure that they're expiring at different times? So that's a, you know, that is a fundamental aspect of planning because you don't want to confer leverage on, on the unions by having an agreement expiring right in the middle of your, uh, you know, you know, production target you know, for, 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 for meeting whatever the demand is. So it, it's, again, simple things, mm. but if you leave it to the last minute, you lose the opportunity. Yeah. Do you have any other great ideas? I do. I've got a couple. Oh, funny you should them. ask, yeah, Tony. Well, um, uh, look, I'll give you my three. They're on a similar theme, but I'll change pace with the first one. And I want to talk about protected industrial action because in this new world of enterprise bargaining, it is far more important than it ever was. If you're an employer that is of the view that you just can't withstand industrial action at all, then you are not going to do well in this yeah. new environment and you're gonna end up with some pretty bad outcomes. So that's really the first point. You need clarity as part of your bargaining planning well in advance of commencement on what measures are available to you to mitigate the effects of industrial action and really test yeah. your existing thinking on that because often the view is, well, we just can't. It's too expensive, we've got no other options. No other way to uh, manufacture the products we produce or resource the work. We can't do it at different sites. We can't do it with different people. It costs too much. That's often the starting point. But really challenging those propositions and exploring what options are available. Because often, not always, there are some employers with some uh, very inherent um, uh, disadvantages on this front. Yeah, but there's always someone who's more at risk. Do you yeah. think that 
the types of PIA are going to change. I mean, what 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 we've seen in in, in certain industries, it's very successful. You know, we've mm. seen in New South Wales uh, public service with you know in health and and in transport, it's it's you know massively inconvenient and actually a very good lever for unions to pull to yeah. take uh, you know strike action. But amongst our clients, we're seeing less and less of that. And we're seeing really annoying, sorry, not less and less. We've seen a reduction in that over years. Historically, we have. Over years, which goes to my point. Do you think there's going to be more strike action or do you think we'll continue to see lots of annoying, but, you know, very effective sometimes bans imposed by unions? I think we will see more of both. And I think on balance, we will see more of the strike type action, the stoppages, as opposed to the partial work bans. Because in part, I think the Fair Work Commission is going to expect it. I think if if people want to ultimately utilise these intractable bargaining processes, as many will, Mm. there will be an expectation, and my prediction is we'll see this come through in the early case law, expectation that the parties use the tools available to them. Industrial action is a tool that is designed to force people into concessions. That's the point. And the, the scheme Commission, of the Act, it is. it's right behind it. Economic it coercion by both parties. So necessarily, the Act is almost constructed in a way to further encourage that, yeah. including through mechanisms like removing some of the other tools. Employers used to have the option to apply to terminate agreements. Yeah, yeah. And that was a leverage play yeah. in order to encourage people to make concessions. That's gone. What's left? Well, you've got lockout. What else? You have encouraging people, employees, that they're not going to get a better deal on the commission. There's actually not much else. So we're going to see more of it. And employers that are run, even those that want to actually go into intractable bargaining and get an arbitration as a proactive measure, they're going to have to withstand a period of industrial action. There's the nine-month requirement. You're going to have a pretty steady period of intense industrial action there. So what I'm suggesting is is this. As part of the bargaining planning, having a very clear view of, of all the options available for mitigation, um, uh, operating at other yeah. sites, operating through yeah. use of third-party labour, yeah. yeah. use of staff, et cetera, et cetera. We all know the measures. Yeah. But not just that. It's then been clear on which, what, how much lag time is there to implement each of those measures. How yeah. effective will each of those measures ultimately be? Will it enable you to operate to 100% capacity even during a period of an indefinite strike? Yeah. Will it be 80%? Will it be 40%? Will you only be able to sustain it for one week? Mm-hmm. Uh, not two weeks. Uh, all of those measures are important. And, and then also related to that is the cost of those measures and the cost of lost revenue and lost production. So you're, you're really saying uh, you need to be more granular and understand those risks and the costs so that you can factor in what position you're going to adopt in bargaining. That is exactly where I was going, Tony, right. because once you've done that analysis, it essentially becomes a mathematical exercise yeah. because you will know Let's assume my worst case scenario and we're subjected to industrial action. Mm. We're going to know how much that's going to cost. Mm. And what that enables us to do, you can know that with precision, with Mm. the right planning. Yes, it's a lot of work. I understand that. But with precision, you will know what is the cost of sustaining an intense industrial action campaign. Now, that cost might be significant Mm. or with solid mitigation, it might not actually be all that much. Because remember, you're also saving on strike pay. So uh, once you know the answers to those questions, you will know and you'll have a detailed plan in advance that you run up the chain and ensure all stakeholders are aligned in advance as to when you're going to implement these measures, what they're going to cost. And then that enables you to look at the other side of the ledger. We know how much a sustained industrial action campaign will cost us. We can then work out, well, how much of that are we prepared to, to withstand and sustain 
in order to achieve our bargaining objectives. Mm. And we will know that yes. our objectives, industrial action is short-term cost. It's a one-off, right? Achieving bargaining objectives is, as we know, essentially an ongoing benefit. It's important not to cost the benefits as just the nominal term of the agreement. It's not a two-year benefit, it's yeah. not a three-year benefit. It's effectively enduring because of the points that we made before, Tony. In agreements, yeah. you're only ever going to go upwards when it comes to terms and conditions. So that enables both sides of the ledger, cost of pursuing a claim and withstanding industrial action versus the benefit that you might stand to gain from it. And the same analysis applies to union claims. How, how hard do you want to resist a particular claim, including by withstanding the cost of industrial action, in order to resist the additional costs that, that will apply to your business? With, with an overlay of the impact of your position on, uh, on, on the culture and the trust that you have within your workforce. So if you're, if you're resisting manifestly um, you know, simple union claims, um, then you, know, you, you may well you know, take some time to recover. You know, if everyone else in your, your industry or sector or uh, geographical location is paying you know, 4% and you're only offering 2% and you hold out and hold out, you know, that's got a long-term impact on retention yeah. uh, and culture within the business. So you've got, to, you've got to meet that fine line between accommodating the business needs yes. And also, you know, having your workplace that people want to work in. And there's a point there about prioritisation of claims, which we'll come to in a moment. But just to finish the point about industrial action, the, the reason I'm suggesting this very intensive work be done in advance is that it enables you to be in document mm. form, probably, to actually be clear about how you're going to approach the industrial action well before it arises. Mm. And you can run that up the chain, get approval from all stakeholders, to avoid knee-jerk reactions when industrial action hits. Yeah, because yeah. In, in my experience, that is how bargaining ends in the worst possible way, yeah. where you have knee-jerk decision-making in response to industrial action in circumstances where it is relatively easy to foresee and scenario plan various different scenarios and the impacts they will have and have a view in advance as to what the business will do in response. As best you can in the circumstances. As best you, yeah. there's always exceptions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think um, at least you do that base level planning yeah. and at least you'll have a reasonable enough view about the direction the business is prepared to take and how yeah. much pain the business is prepared to incur yeah. in order to pursue particular claims. Which brings me to a related point. My, my point number two is prioritisation of those claims. So employers are often good at developing a log, there'll be some benefits they want to extract from the bargaining process, although often it's more about uh, stemming the, the flow of uh, claims being advanced by the union. Yes, it's defensive. But I think here, much important that employers spend some time in crafting their own proactive offensive claims, because you need at least some of them on the table if you end up in the intractable bargaining jurisdiction. Well, you've got nothing to concede. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, there's, there's a bit of a game in bargaining, unfortunately, but it's like any negotiation. You've got to have your points that you can concede and pursue, and, and some are more important than others. Yes, but as best as possible, in addition to having your proactive claims, be clear on the priority of them. Now, there'll be some that are just absolute non-negotiable. There'll be few, very few of those, I suspect, because everything has a price and everything will have a limit as to how much pain you're prepared to endure. Mm -hmm. The next category is, well, we'd really like these and we're going to push very hard for them, but uh, ultimately there's a price to them and we're only prepared yeah. to sustain so much harm to achieve those benefits. Mm -hmm. And then there's the category of little extras you'd love to get, but it's not you're not really going to fight for. Yeah. It's possible to get some pretty clear guidance from the business in advance 
if there's good work that's done in costing the benefits of each of those claims, the benefits of resisting union claims, yep. comparing it as against the cost of withstanding industrial action. And again, that enables that mathematical exercise. You can do that to quite a degree of precision. With a lot of work, yes. But the benefit of it, I think, is that it enables much greater stakeholder engagement ahead of bargaining so that you're not bogged down in getting approvals from meeting to meeting. Okay, well, look, that, that's great in theory, Rowan. How many of your clients are doing that? That's why we're having this podcast, Tony. There's, so I mean, look, the truth. Is, I mean, what, I think the point is, with, mm. without you know being critical, Can I of say clients, some and not and, many are doing it. Yeah, not, not many, many, not many businesses are investing probably the sufficient uh, uh, time and resources into this kind of planning. Are well, the, they? the good, the good large employers. Of course, are. Yeah, they've got okay. There's some there. Capacity. Those watching this podcast, I will acknowledge that you're doing a good job, um, but. Generally speaking, I mean, even that approach will need to change slightly in light of the changes that we've spoken to. There will, yeah. there will be differences in what needs to be done yeah. and probably greater rigour in the evidence collation, the data that sits behind it, because you will need that at the back end of the process. But I agree. But the you vast need majority... that, that evidence anyway mm. to convince your employees. You do. I mean, mm. if you can't convince your employees, you're not going to be able to convince easily the commission anyway. So yes. It's about getting that data. No, I agree. And that's why you need to front end that process and not wait for arbitration because there's much benefit yeah. in it. But I agree with your point, Tony. Generally speaking, employers will need to invest more in more this than they, than, than they have currently, yep. which um, I've already touched on what is my final, final tip, which is stakeholder alignment on all of the above in advance. And, yep. and again, uh, I've seen some really bad outcomes where sufficient stakeholder alignment wasn't obtained in advance and yep. where you get different views that surface once the pressure increases, the heat gets turned up, industrial action happens, and all of a sudden everyone's not on the same page. And that is a recipe for disaster and for bad outcomes. And it is possible to scenario plan for most things in advance. It takes a lot of time. I'm not taking away from that. I'm not minimizing that. A lot of time in stakeholder engagement. But if you start earlier, Tony, you've mentioned two years, whether it's two years, a year, nine months, that at least gives an opportunity for a good couple of months of, of clear engagement with the relevant people and, to make yeah. sure that we're on the on the same page about the path bargaining. And, and on your stakeholder point, um, that means you know getting bored uh, oversight of this process early too. Sometimes, yes. Because yeah. you don't want a board saying, this is not our strategy, mm. you know, pulling the, the rug out and then what, what are you left with? So... But boards are much more engaged now because they're much more aware of the risks associated with these reforms. So I think it's easier to get a, at least get the issue on the agenda for board meetings. Well, well, that's one positive that I have noticed already, Tony, is that it is on the board agenda. It's certainly on the agendas of executive leadership teams and, yeah. and CEOs. We're, we're being engaged to, to help with that stakeholder yeah. management. But I think what you definitely do not want is an executive team who is not aware of the risks of the deal being pushed into intractable bargaining and forced outcomes through the Fair Work Commission. You, you want to make sure that they're aware of the likely increased risk of protected industrial action and the need, need, frankly, I think, to be able to at least sustain a degree of that. Because if you're entering negotiations with the view that, well, we can't sustain any of it, then, I mean, that's obviously a very bad negotiating position. Yeah. And like I mentioned, there's there's some employers that will find that harder than others and that have some inherent disadvantages when it comes to that. But I think that's if you're going to put your focus anywhere, it's it's in the planning for protected industrial action mitigation. Yep. So um, 
I think that's it, Tony. There we have it. The um, increasing complexity. We could go for hours. In we, fact, when the when could. the camera stops, I'm sure we'll continue. <laughs> we'll keep talking. Yes. Um, but look, lots of what are hopefully very helpful tips there in how to navigate the new bargaining environment. There is unfortunately, I think, a lot of extra work that needs to be done. But I do, I do firmly believe that that work will deliver tangible, better outcomes for for business. So um, do reach out if you need any help with bargaining planning in the new world of enterprise bargaining. Uh, but until next time, thanks for joining us on Inside IR. If you have any feedback, we'd love to hear it. Comment on LinkedIn, send us a direct message or email insideir at hsf.com. Otherwise, we'll see you on the next episode of Inside IR. Thank you.